0: around digital technologies, and by hype, I mean unrealistic near-term projections of technological change, is a recurring theme on this podcast. Hype is what you get from entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and university presidents. It's the promise that great things are just on the horizon and that the future is going to be a brighter, happier place. But there's a flip side to hype, something I call critihype. hype It too believes that our technological future will be radically different than our present, or that we are living in the midst of a technological revolution. It just flips the prediction over and asserts that the future will be dystopian, not utopian. A great example of CritiHype is the popular Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. And here I'm putting that word documentary in scare quotes. Now, maybe down the road, we'll do an entire episode on just how bad, how truly terrible the social dilemma really is. But for now, I will just say that its premise that social media companies are able to control our minds like puppet masters is without foundation. Indeed, like a lot of the worst hype, you might even suspect that the makers of the social dilemma were being paid by digital technology firms. Because Facebook, Google and these other companies make most of their money selling advertisements they would love for everyone to believe that their ads can control our behavior when a good deal of evidence suggests the opposite is true the result of both hype and critahype and how journalists repeat both of them is that our information environment about current technological change is awful it's not reliable We are inundated with unrealistic forecasts of change, both positive utopian and negative dystopian. So where do we turn in such a context for good information? Well, mercifully, there are lots of people doing good work on the social and political dimensions of digital technology. Some of them have already been on this podcast, and more will be down the road. But one place I have reliably turned to over the years is the AI Now Institute at New York University. And someone I've really come to respect over the last few years is Meredith Whitaker, the co-founder and faculty director of AI Now and Minderu Research Professor at NYU. In this conversation, we talk about her fascinating career, starting at Google and then transitioning to academia. And we talk about her work and her hopes for a better future. I hope you enjoy our chat. Get excited. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today
1: thank you so much lee i'm very happy to be here
0: um i thought we might use your recent recent uh nature article as a jumping off point it, it's co-written with uh jathan, jathan sadowski and salome viljon is that right how do you say salome's name
1: i believe salome billion but i think okay. that was that was close and and salome i hope i got that right
0: uh, the piece is titled everyone should decide how their digital data are used not just tech companies so what problem were you and your co-authors hoping to draw attention to in that piece
1: I think there is a, a nexus of problems and I know that you know, both Salome and Jason have done a lot of work on the political economy of platforms and data and looking at you know the way in which access to a lot of these you know, Data resources, or simply information about platforms and the incentives and, and business decisions driving them, um, are shielded from scrutiny um, you know, in, in a number of different ways. And I think, you know, I was coming to that piece with a, a kind of fundamental concern around data and our assumptions of you know, how it is able to mean or reflect things in our, our reality. So you know, backing up from there, my background before I got into the kind of, you know, AI criticism game was building and sort of managing large scale infrastructures for uh, in- network measurement. So like low mm-hmm. level kind of TCP info dumps and, you know, measuring if it's you know how long it takes a packet to reach another destination, and and you know through that making decisions about you know how fast or how neutral or how you know x the internet might be, which was like a very hot policy topic in the you know early mid 2000s, right? Like who you know who regulates that, and and yeah. were you know platforms, common carriers, et cetera. So you know in that background, I got really um, you know or through that process, I got sort of a like you know face first experience of the like like duct tape and twine processes that go into trying to like stabilize and create meaning out of data and you know the types of politics that go into determining the measurement methodology by which you produce data so i was working at like you know deciding how we would do a linux kernel update across a fleet of servers because when you update the kernel you're going to update the way in which like the numbers that become data are literally produced. So I'm not going to go into that. Um, And then I was also like at the FCC, like arguing (laughs) that like certain methodologies, which were of course like wink, wink, very convenient to the platform companies, were in fact the like correct and scientifically sound methods for, um, you know, knowing whether Mm -hmm. the networks were neutral or, you know, how fast they were or, you know, other other questions that might have been answered. So that like that seems like a really roundabout way to get back to yeah. the nature piece, but I think it it was sort of what ignited my concern over the the guileless use of data to sort of make determinations about our world and the way in which I think the threshold of our demands as people who want to understand these systems better and the you know political economy driving them is often you know I, I think that horizon is often a, a little bit. know it's not ambitious enough to actually meet the the, you know to actually actually answer our questions um by which i mean asking facebook for more data is still asking facebook to sort of give us data that is answering their questions that is reflecting their methodological assumptions and is Mm. basically like made up about the world to you know to to you know in ways that uh like fulfill their their business interests it does not necessarily like reflect the world around us, nor is it necessarily capable of like telling us about that world. It's capable of telling us what platforms want to know about that world. Right. So that was my intervention in a piece that was really in you know, like one of the my favorite collaborative projects in the last last while where, you know, Salome has done a lot of work on on, you know, the idea of data cooperatives or cooperative platforms and, and Jason has also looked at that. But that was I, I guess really long answer to say that was kind of my animating concern like how would we create our own data about us and then sort of determine how it's used instead of like begging companies for crumbs and scraps
0: right i i really like how you draw attention in the piece to how you know the firms are are framing up like what is interesting and and worth worth looking into but it's part of the argument also that you know look our activities are generating a lot of, like literally generating this data, right? So is there a kind of rights and access uh, issue there around just kind of like consumer rights or citizens rights to data?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, our anything we do that they can instrument to sort of measure and numerate and sort of, you know, quantify in some database fashion, they seem to be willing to, right? Like, you know, yeah. we're, it's not, it's, it, it's sort of interest in our activities as proxies for sort of optimization functions that are sort of right. driving that data. So in one sense, it is ours, right? It's like tethered yeah. to my body in space, in community, in time, in this world. In another sense, it's like made up shit about us that is not, yeah. you know, like I want to be able to contest that. I want to say like that has nothing, you know, I don't fit into that classicatory bucket that has nothing to do with me. You will never know my inferiority. So I think there is sort of, you know, there's a sort of, I guess, sort of dual right there yeah. that I would love to see flexed a little more.
0: hmm. Yeah, I remember there was a, like 10 or more years ago, Google had some page to that showed you what it thought you was. And I was like, uh. 80 year old british woman i think because i you know like watched mysteries and drank tea and stuff so it had me very wrong at that time i'm sure it's gotten more accurate over time but yeah
1: well they probably scraped a bunch of credit card databases and other things to sort of you know help shore yeah. up that that yeah. uh clairvoyant guesstimate <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so what do you think that what do you think the solution is i mean i thought one of the reasons i like this piece is because you guys lay out a pretty clear road forward so what is that
1: i mean i think one solution and again like the problem we're solving is is pretty big right this you know kind of rabid form of racial capitalism is literally threatening the future of organized human life you know the the ipcc report came out yesterday and i'm i'm dwelling on it right but you know i think one intervention that has a lot of power to interrupt this i will say is you know kind of the idea of you know, i think the idea of data trust is intriguing i think there are sort of you know there are real questions we need to answer again about what the power dynamics of who constitutes data and who data you know it purports to to describe or to you know mean about yeah. um but i think you know beginning to sort of constitute data trust or you know quantities of data about things that these these companies say they you know kind of answer but like how do how do we create data about ourselves and then how do we just define how it's sort of shared and there was there was an example that we added to that piece that got cut because editing is is hard um, but it yeah. was just looking at things like the anti-eviction mapping process project and Ida B well red record as you know these sort of examples of you know truly collaborative and intentional sort of construction of data about you know communities lives and experiences that were actually sort of you know, interventions in a much broader discourse. So, you know, how Mm -hmm. do we begin to think about data in those terms and then begin to think about, you know, what data do we want? How are we careful about, you know, methodological concerns around how we construct data or how we, you know, know ourselves and each Mm -hmm. other? And then how do we share those and sort of, you know, access those in ways that help us, you know, that help us live, you know, wonderful, dignified lives. Mm Um, and I yeah. think that that does mean sort of excising data or sort of you know taking data from some of these platforms. I think knowing what they think they know about us is is powerful, and you know some of this this data may be useful, but I think it it doesn't it is not simply a call to like give it to us and we'll use it because I think that you know there's some tricky power dynamics still in some of the um the ways that's constructed as
0: yeah, I was thinking about earlier moments, so i you know. Back some years ago, I wrote this book about the history of automobile regulation in the United States. And the insurance industry had just loads of data in the mid-20th century that would have been extremely helpful for dealing with all kinds of public problems around accidents and technological change and regulation and such. And yet, you know, the insurance industry is very protective of its data and will argue of course just like these you know tech firms would that you know it's how they compute compete in the world so we'd be undermining their competitiveness so you know like what what is your 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 response to that that kind of corporate critique of uh what what you're proposing
1: i, mean, I think i think we will hear that answer yeah. right and we've heard that you know like they're still flexing arcane laws like Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, right? To stop people from, you know, some of the, the most minimal forms of inquiry, you know, that are possible from outside of these environments, right? So there is, you know, it is clear that there is a resistance to providing any more information than they would like sort of contained in a marketing pamphlet, right? Yeah. And that, you know, the these sort of, that they claim the right to dictate the stories we tell about these technologies and to sort of own that, you know, that discursive space. Um, I think, you know, I think there are, I don't I don't know. I, I guess my answer to that is like, yeah, they're going to say that and we need to, right. you know, work around it, right? There are, you know, there are privacy concerns, right? You can't just mm-hmm. like dump yeah. this stuff out onto the street and let everyone you know, kind of rummage through it. But I think, you know, some combination of like auditing what data these firms mm-hmm. have. And, and again, what what do they call data and, and you know, how is that structured is a is question. And then determining like of what, if any, utility is this data um, is is kind of a, a first step that would, you know, again, require kind of a, just a significant structural overhaul to how we think about these corporations and how we regulate them and, you know, of course, how we like finance campaigns and. And, you know, enable lobbying and all of the rest of the apparatus that comes with it. Mm
0: The other the other kind of uh, I could see I'm just imagining like libertarians, like I'm pretty very far from libertarians, but they there's like some version of their in my head. I have debates with. And I was thinking about like the public infrastructure side, like the data trust side of it. And I was thinking about like, you know. In a world of kind of constraints around, you know, public money, and we have all these like big public infrastructure maintenance problems already. Like we're just terrible with like the systems we build. Like why, why do you think building uh, kind of data trust or public digital infrastructure of this sort is kind of like worth it for, for the public?
1: <sighs> well, I think it's, you know, I think ways of, knowing ourselves and our communities and our infrastructures are worthwhile right yeah and if we're going to take the frame that right now tech companies have both the you know have claimed the right to both sort of make meaning about us incorrect or not and claim the right to sort of hide that and use it you know only to answer their own questions right only in relation to those then I think there is just a clear argument to be made that like, no, you should, you know, why on earth would you Mm. have the, you know, have the right to do that when we don't, right? There's just a kind of civic minded argument. Mm. I think there is a much bigger question in this like moment of kind of climate collapse inflection. And in this moment where like, literally nothing else works, it's just everything is janky and crumbling. And there's (laughs) like a compounded janky system crumbling. Like, is it? possible that this could be sort of somehow stood up as an exception to that rule and no i don't think so like you know again we're Mm -hmm. looking at a halcyon future in which a lot of different things are very very different including like our you know willingness to truly invest in you know in, like actual social good and not some you know glossy tech marketing that claims
0: the term yeah yeah i saw we were there was some interaction on Twitter where I saw you kind of talking about this issue. I mean, with climate change, you know, a lot of our, the way we do computing right now is just premised on these totally unrealistic energy futures that we can't sustain, right? So you can easily imagine futures where um, computing is at a different place than it is today. And they're kind of drawn back, like smaller scale stuff right not going forward these enormous cloud-based server farms and stuff like that
1: yeah i don't i mean i i think i was sort of i was being a bit flipped probably (laughs) because but i you know i don't see how these sort of data intensive processes that require you know massive cooling rigs and you know just these really fragile sort of supply chain infrastructures are going to survive like, you know, a couple more hits of like massive flooding in a place that data centers are, you know, exists or, you know, Amazon infrastructure going out just like one too many times for us to be able to ignore that they control most of the web. You know, I think these right. things are, I think these things are coming. And then the question of like, how do we all carry, you know, a tracking mm-hmm. device or how do we, you know, how do they continue to computationally instrument us to sort of keep that cycle going is, yeah is germane.
0: Totally. And the maintenance issues are huge. I won't go there right now, but... <laughs>
1: it's it's you know. huge, So That's, like, yeah. where the money is, right? This is this yeah. this thing, like, you know, the, the group at Google that I was in was a technical infrastructure group. And that was, you know, you could tell that was where the power was because they didn't have to do, you know, they didn't have any market. <laughs> they didn't have to do right. anything. Yeah. They didn't have to do talks. Yep. They, like, no one had to know about them, right? But, like, their yeah. budgets were by far... The most zeros and like the amount of the amount of human labor the amount of people carrying a pager For every like small instance of this just times 110 billion. And I think you know one of my frustrations with this is like that has been so well hidden in the narrative about tech That it's like yeah. has to be revived in every single conversation about these futures
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. So my teachers taught me never to assume because it makes an ass out of you and me. Uh, and but just kind of like doing the work you've done, I assumed that you had some kind of degree in computing, falsely. Um, so how did you, um, you know, how did you come to work at Google? Uh, you know, starting with a degree in rhetoric from from Berkeley.
1: Rhetoric and English. So <laughs> really? Oh, no, all right. Doubled, <laughs> doubled down um, on on that career choice. Um, I, I was, I graduated Berkeley in 2006 and yeah. Google was small and I put my resume on monster and had, I just was very broke. And so I was looking for work and I'd thought about grad school, but in, at that time and coming from what I came from, I didn't have the sort of examples of successful people who gone to grad school. It just seemed like mm-hmm. what rich kids could do. And I was very worried about rent. Um, and Google was the one that hired me. And so I didn't, mm-hmm. I had no interest in, I had no interest in like tech. I didn't know, I didn't know what a mm-hmm. server was. I remember a man explaining that a server was a computer and I was like, huh. Um, <laughs> it was always a man yeah. explaining something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I got into it at that time and I was just really curious about what, like, like why these people were so smug, why, you know, like, where does this like, like the competence they all floated on, right? They had just yeah. refrigerators. Like back when kombucha was like $7 a bottle and alcoholic, they had just refrigerators full of kombucha. And, you know, like I was like, why, you know, like, where is this, this richness? Is this just a class? I am? Is this how all of these folks live? Is this just like, yeah. I haven't been in the right class? Or is this like, what's going on? And so I think I was just driven by like a, by like trying to answer these very basic questions, like into a rabbit hole of then, Starting to understand these systems, and I was also there at a very early time. So I think there were somewhere like 2,500 people total working for the company, and it's Mm. over 200,000 now if you you know count contractors that you absolutely must. And so I was there, you know, I was there at a time where like I didn't, I don't know, I've described it in the past as like I didn't realize the like the check wasn't made out to me, so I kept like trying to cash it by being like I want 20% projects and like. And then I just kind of got away with it. And then I started working in standards and then I started working in measurement, which is, of course, a form of standardization. And then I got like real deep into just like, how do you think about the kind of politics and practicalities of data construction and like running, you know, this, this effort? And then I built that out into a research group that was kind of like tackling the fun things that I thought were most interesting, which like were generally more, you know, kind of socially minded issues like, you know, privacy and and then everyone started talking about machine learning and ai and it seemed really suspect to me because it was like this sort of data dependency that we would just sort of like forgotten all of these lessons or you know at least i was being asked to forget all of the lessons that i would i'd, I'd yeah. learned like pulling teeth to like make a measurement system that i could claim was was uh capable of reflecting the world that said it
0: reflected so i hang out in the uh small world of uh historians of standardization so that's um i know i know uh how did you get into standards was how did you start doing that work
1: um so i started so i i also like i said mentioned i started at google like they didn't hire me because they're like oh brilliant come on to so, like an elite role i was a um i did customer support so i was writing oh. like documentation for rightly which was an acquisition they just had with like became Google Docs, but that was like, it was like this, you know, at that point, it was like a janky app they uh, acquired. And I was writing documentation and doing like help center stuff for Rightly. And there was this, uh, there was this standards battle that was fomenting at the time around, like Microsoft trying to release this standard called OOXML. So it was like the open, open office format or something. And it was, You know, one of the problems with standardization is it relies on these kind of like outdated ceremonies in which, you know, you assume a community of practice that is on relatively equal footing. You assume good faith and it's primarily volunteer work that then, of course, is like underwritten by whoever is willing to pay you to volunteer to go to these standards. committees, Right. So it's it's, like fairly easy to infiltrate. And now we're having all of these conversations of like shit, China figured it out. Right. But like this has been going on forever. Um, and Microsoft was trying to sort of pass this standard off as open by, you know, kind of some combination of just like being very present in a number of standard bodies and kind of like, you know, rigging the vote in some way. And I don't remember all the details at all, but the standard was not truly open. And so the contest there was like Google. Google Docs, which was like, you know, Nay rightly, was wanting to interoperate with Word v- via this standard, right? And so mm-hmm. I was on the, I like figured out a way to get myself on the team that was like pushing back against that. And then I got kind of involved in the standard communities and then I started working with like Vint Cerf and there's this little group that did standard stuff. Yeah. And like, I, you know, I basically did like network. The networking world for a very long time so i would go to all the like network standards meetings and just knew that community really well but that was that was my entree um and that was also like like it was also like how it was a good lesson in the way that like the commodification of like network technologies yeah. and the way that it was sort of transformed from a kind of military funded academic discipline with industries sort of built around it to kind of a primarily commercial endeavor mm-hmm. like meant that there were, like, a lot of, like, vestigal organizations and vestigal, like, again, like, rituals around standardization yeah. or, or what have you that were, like, very easy to instrument by these
0: companies. Mm-hmm. This is, like, probably skipping forward a couple years, but I think one of the earliest ways some people came to hear about you is that you were one of the core organizers of the Google Walkouts, which took place in 2018. So, in case listeners don't know about the walkouts or have forgotten about them, uh, can you explain what they were and you know why they were important?
1: Yeah, well, I, so I was one of the core organizers, but it was really like there was like thousands of people who yeah. organized. So it was a, it was a, I think the biggest manifestation of labor organizing that had been sort of fomenting at Google and other tech companies for a moment, and it was a, it was a global walkout across, I forget how many, but most of Google's campuses globally, including like a data center in, in Oklahoma and, and, you know, a number of, of other places. Anyway, we were, you know, we, it was a kind of mini strike um, and it was protesting kind of a nexus of issues that had to do with this sort of persistent culture of sexual harassment and discrimination, the persistent culture of racism and discrimination. And, you know, we were working to interweave those with some of the structural discrimination, like the way sort of, you know, the racial discrimination exists on a kind of a, at the border of like full-time and contract workers. Right. And sort of, you know, you have the bulk of contract workers are way made up of racialized people, generally black or brown people. um, Whereas full-time workers are generally white and those, you know, like the affordances that gives them. And then, you know, looking also at the way in which some of the business decisions, like the, you know, decisions to build artificial intelligence for the U S drone program are also sort of, you know, decisions that reflect that ethos, right? The people who are Mm -hmm. going to be harmed are generally racialized minorities and the people who are, you know, benefiting and going to Davos and, you know, profiting off of these decisions are generally white. So it was um, about 20,000 people walked out. And I think it was just it was a very visible spectacle um, that helped publicize a lot of the work. The labor organizing work that had been going on in sort of quieter form
0: right like the tech workers coalition for instance started a bit earlier it's like 2014 or 2015, 2015 yeah. but it felt like one of these moments where there were a bunch of things coming together and maybe something of a turning point
1: i hope so i mean i think my turning point there was like around maven and that's when i was sort of you know i've I'd, I'd been supportive of Tech Workers Coalition, and I've been supportive of, like, you know, the idea of organizing unions or organizing labor in tech, um, which seems, you know, both obvious and remote for a long time for me, but it was around Maven when I was, you know, I just felt like it was such a clear contest of power. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, they don't, they're going to sign these contracts because that's how you meet the revenue goals for cloud, right? Like, there is no question about that. And so we're going to have to have
0: some peace. Explain what Maven was and what the significance of it was.
1: Maven was a a contract that Google signed with the U.S. Department of Defense to build machine vision recognition systems that would be employed in the U.S. drone war. Um, uh-huh. And it was but, you know, Maven itself was was important as this kind of catalyst project that was trying to realize this vision of further entangling U.S. big tech with the um, U.S. military, which has a number of strategic advantages, but this is a project that like Ash Carter and Eric Schmidt and a number of folks sort of like Obama era military folks and tech executives have been kind of fomenting for a minute. And I don't, I don't actually know all the details. I sort of saw it like, you know, through the tea leaves for a while, but Uh there was, you know, Maven sort of kicked that off and um, it's becoming, you know, the fact that it became a flashpoint at Google and catalyzed. Labor organizing was something that, um, you know, I, I at least sort of I, I think helped um, the DOD walk back some of the claims. But I, as I mm-hmm. say that, I'm like, you know, no, they just stood up an ethics council and said
0: it was ethical. But <laughs> <laughs> you just brought up you brought up a bunch of stuff I want to uh, I want to return to a little bit later. But first, I mean, the at about the same time that um, the walkouts happening and you know eventually you leave google you're also were co-founding the ai now institute right was that happening pretty close to like the same time
1: yeah ai now was officially founded at nyu like november 2017 okay and then like so i'm like putting like a calendar yeah. image in my brain right now to like map this Linearly, Um, and then it was like early 2018. So I think it was about February 2018 when the Maven stuff kicked off, and that had been like it was actually like I like you know began a lot of that around the time AI Now became official at NYU, and then I was just like doing both for a while.
0: Yeah. And so tell me tell me a bit about why you co-founded you know AI Now and what what you originally hoped to do with it. I think.
1: Well, I mean, there's a number of ways to answer this. I think originally I, you know, I was on the inside of Google and I've been sort of seeping in that and I was getting increasingly worried about, you know, AI and just like how, how like, like catnip the hype was. Just everyone was suddenly a machine learning engineer. I had, you know, one, like it was like none of these words meant anything anymore. And there was, again, there was sort of like a way in which that sort of erased these concerns about like you know, data and meaning and all of this stuff that had seemed to at least have some purchase on reasonable people in the past that, yeah. you know, I'd flatter myself to think at least. Um, and I, there was a moment when like some dude from Harvard pitched me on funding a genocide detection machine learning system. And I was like, okay, fuck this. Pardon, pardon me, audience I was yeah, I, like it. I just didn't understand what was going on and that like is usually where everything starts for me where I'm like, well, I'll yeah. try to answer the question and then, and then forty years later I, I'm like <laughs> not even close um, but I think you know and so so I was I was like concerned about this and I was also seeing the sort of hype on the outside like the wired articles and the way in which like yeah. The tech industry, like, carefully instrumented transhumanism to give the veneer of intelligence to this sort of, like, marketing push around machine learning and AI. Like, all of this was, like, the, you know, this sort of nexus of, of issues. And no. um, and it seemed like there needed to be a counterbalance that was asking different questions and sort of creating at least, like, a public reference point for some of these issues. And yeah. it seems. You know, it seems fun to do that at a university. I liked collaborating with people outside of Google because I didn't always get along with the culture. And oftentimes I'd find more sort of sympathetic folks in different spaces. Um, and and let's be clear, this is at a time when like anything connected to the tech industry and anything connected to like AI in particular was so attractive to universities who are looking for tech funding, who are looking for, you know, some way to like polish their image with this sort of new shibboleth of AI. So I would say I took advantage of that in a lot of senses because I was able to bring my own budget. I had a lot of money at Google and I was directing it. So I was able to bring my own budget. I was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to put this into funding AI now. And like, I was able to get dual affiliation at NYU, which is a practice we could talk about, but it's like pretty common in the AI field. And it just means that a tech company pays you, but you have a, you know, a university affiliation and no one bats an eye. So,
0: yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing. (laughs) Wow. Again, you bring up so much I want to ask you about. Uh, Well, I mean, I think, you know, like when you first thought about you know, you start up AI now, and you, you first start doing this work. I mean, what did you re- initially want to do? I mean, I think part of your the story you're telling is that as you've kind of had experience inside of this certain kind of institution, like things have changed for all of us, right? Our our visions of AI have changed, and 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 this. But wait, what do you remember? What you initially wanted to kind of set out to do? So, like,
1: this is not claiming that I did it. I think I learned yeah. a lot about. um the academia industry and about the sort of limitations of some of these forms in the process. But, you know, I think initially I, it seemed like a really, you know, like a cool, clever plan, right? Like how Mm -hmm. do we get the resources and attention onto a more radical project that all of these sort of like weak sauce, like, yeah, I'm not going to name names because I'm diplomatic, but like there were a number of like centers and endowed institutes Uh and, and what have you that were sort of dedicated to like, you know, researching the super intelligence a hundred years off right yeah so it's you know it's not hard to justify that like we need to look at the practical problems now and for me at the time because of you know all types of converged privilege i was like i was able to bring a bunch of money and i was able to like bring you know the google imprimatur right and i was like okay can we use this to uh basically get the types of resources these centers have for something that's going to be doing something very different and you know, the hope then was to be able to, you know, make discursive change that would at least undermine the surety of some of the marketing. Mm. And I think, you know, I think we were successful on that. But then I think like discursive change is not necessarily always like good, right? Like there's a number of like techniques that have just cabined off these questions again. So like, you know, we're now looking at bias bounties, right? Which is reframed bias to be kind of a you know a technical flaw found in the depths of code right. and fix right like we're you know like the struggle is not over um and i think it was you know again i think there are limitations of working within sort of the, the academic frame but yeah that's totally that's basically the story
0: another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help I I've just always impressed by uh the folks around AI now. I mean two people that come to mind quickly are Joy Rankin and Theo Dreyer. Yeah. Um, but there I mean there's just so many smart people there. So I mean I think it's a really it's a great group of folks. It is. Yeah. Um and when it comes to weak sauce, I, I uh I was <laughs> lucky in quotation marks to Go at an event at IBM Watson's office in Manhattan. It was the lamest thing I ever went. It was like the floor I was brought in on was was just a showpiece to try to loop in to seduce executives from other firms to buy Watson talent. Basically, is like the floor I was brought in on with other folks. And then you know after we met Watson again in quotation marks, that was lame too. We went to this like event where we sat on a stage and who did they bring in to talk about these things, but transhumanists. It was all about like how, you know, AI was going to, you know, break down the boundary between machines and people. And so like that was the that's the level of the discourse, at, at, you know, at about the same time that you you were setting up AI now. And I think it's really important to remember that that was kind of what what corporations were up to with academics and others is that yeah. kind of crap.
1: Yeah, it was it was bleak. Um, and, and it was, you know, it was at a time you could say like data has bias and like eight men would say, no data is math. Right. It was a very, like, it was, you know, the, the, we were, we were struggling for very rudimentary gains (laughs) at that point. And, you know, and I think we've moved somewhat, right. There is now like real contestation that is like, not, as interested in the technical mechanism as it is in the business model or in the power relationships that are sort of implied in that model. And I like that's where, you know, that's where I think we can focus attention and and hopefully, you know, actually uh, perturb these companies.
0: Yeah. I wanted to ask you kind of about two sides of, you know, where AI has been in the last four or five years. So, on the one side, I want to talk about like what to do about hype. So some of the more dramatic predictions about the potentials of AI, like Brynjolfsson and McAfee's second machine age, right? Like this kind of fantasies that AI was going to take away all our jobs and, and stuff like that. I mean, that just hasn't panned out yet. We can say yet if we want to. And like technology scholars like Jeff Funk have looked at like you know, top 40 funded AI firms and say they're unlikely to create big changes Soon, you know, it's going to be long and slow and iterative. So, you know, how do you how do you think about the kind of mismatch between the claims that have been made about AI versus what we're actually seeing on the ground? And knowing that, you know, it's not like the claims are doing nothing. People are spending billions upon billions of dollars and restructuring all kinds of things in the name of this technology. So how do you think about that mix?
1: I don't I mean... I, you know, the claims are certainly like moving capital and focus, right? Like they, they, you know, they, they have some, you know, a lot of power and I don't, you know, like I don't, the kind of AI is taking all our jobs, right? Like that was really, you know, it's a really popular claim, like among the Davos set because it. Right. Quietly, like, reifies the claims made about AI, which are closer to the transhumanist side than it is to, like, this is sort of patchwork technology that's never going to quite work. Right? And so, yeah. like, if yep. AI is capable of taking all our jobs, then wow, AI is capable of doing yeah. what I do. It is, like, in some way, like, we've already made an analogy there that is pretty powerful and very, very convenient. Right. Yep. And then it like allows them to be the architects of a solution where they're like, Well, we can't call it welfare, but we can call it universal basic employment. Right. And so there's sort of an yeah. industry around like taking that staging of the problem as a given and then like spinning up all sorts of solutions that are never like rarely historically informed rarely, like, you know, the experimental yeah. design if they even test them is just like atrocious. Like it's all it's like kind of play acting right? Yep. And in the meantime, you have companies like Uber, where like the regulatory arbitrage that is masked in a lot of that hype is sort of moving along to like deeply degrade our yeah. jobs and our labor rights, etc. So I don't, you know, I don't know that it's like a buying time tactic. But I know there is certainly like an industry around like elevating your weakest critics, and sort yeah. of taking them exactly. seriously enough that it like backs you you know, like it, it backs everyone into a corner with you suddenly, you know, like, Yeah, again, are the arbiter of, you know, what is the solution and what is the problem?
0: So elevating your weakest critics plays exactly into the other question I wanted to ask, uh, because I mean, I feel like criticism of AI became very popular since, you know, 2017 or 2018. And you could even say it kind of became an industry in itself. I mean, people are getting not insignificant book deals and fetching several thousand dollars per speech to talk about bias and algorithms. And at the same time, I'm also not going to name names here because I'll try to be diplomatic. But, you know, have these kind of centers opening up around ethics and humane this or that or, around technology. Right. Um, you know, and I think, you know, you know, they were kind of lot, people would argue they're watering it down because it was all about ethics, but probably not regulation. You know, they're not going into. So, you know, how does a kind of casual observer of this scene or say a, a newspaper reader, you know, supposed to sort out the kind of wheat from the shaft when it comes to, you know, this AI criticism space, it gets very confusing.
1: I don't, you know, I don't know what I would observe or what I would, sorry, what I would uh, advise folks to do there. Like, I still get, you know, my dad writes me, it's like, have you seen The Social Dilemma? And I'm like, you know, you know, and he's <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I had to. <laughs>
0: Right, for work, um, yeah. I, I remember the day I had to watch the Social dilemma for work. It was a really, a really painful day.
1: You know? I was profession is processing painful knowledge. Um,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but I you know, like it's it there is certainly an industry, right? Yeah. And there's certainly a um, you know, I think what is interesting about it is like it's a lot of times those critics seem really compelling, right? Because you're yeah. like, holy shit, the specter of this badness is so. Yeah. You know, like it's like libidinal. You're like, oh my God, there's a system yeah. controlling my mind and you know, like it's it's superhuman and and so the the like the way in which the problem is is set out is really um you know, it's it's alarming and it feels like this must be a very serious person who's like taken risks or who has sort of like done their work to present this problem right. to us. And then the remediation is like, you know, and if we're talking about like, you know, humane centers or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> their mediation is like turn off notifications <laughs> in the evening right, or something I thought it was going to be like a you know a gun with fire or something yeah. but um I think it's you know there's a clever bait and switch that happens there where like the problem is so extreme and like you know that again it does this thing of like reifying the tech company's definition yep. of AI right so it's like yep. this is it's you know like it is controlling our minds and like you know implied there is it has the potential to control our minds right or it has yeah. the ability to control our minds which is exactly the kind of marketing that they want right um yeah. and then the, the remediation is fairly weak and i think you know you also have this in like the kind of slightly more critical you know like maybe like less kind of comically yeah. um um you know soft on criticism but like you know like there's sort of criticism that will mention power Right. But then like I'm like name names. Right. Like who you know, which firm. Right. Like, how do you map that? How does that actually like construct a blueprint by which we can better understand how power flows and like better take it back? Right. Mm -hmm. And I think there's you know, you know, you can say like it's power. We need regulation. Right. Well, like Microsoft has been lobbying for regulation for a long time. And that regulation looks like, you know, notice without consent on facial recognition. Right. So, like, I think it's Mm -hmm. there's also just a kind of laziness to a lot of it that is, you know, either intentional or not. But um, I guess I have one more thing to say about this, too. A lot of it gets bolted onto the side of technical conferences or sort of technical fields. And this is by design because you always, you know, these companies and this industry wants to maintain the primacy of kind of computer science as these sort of expertise that can ultimately speak to these issues. Um, so you have yeah. things like to apply for an NSF grants on some of these issues, you have to have at least one person with a computer yeah. science degree applying, right, which is not the type of skills you would actually need to really address these issues. And at the same time, then you have like, you know, ethics and bias and even sort of anti-racism being bolted onto the side of conferences like NeurIPS or, you know, other other machine learning yeah. conferences where you don't have people at those conferences who are actually sort of like from the disciplines that would be needed to like peer review this stuff, right? So there's sort of a, you know, like I really do think we need to take the like, the task of expertise more seriously and the task of of, like interdisciplinarity more seriously, even though that word has become kind of a buzzword for just like get everyone in a room. But like, I think, you know, like how do you actually like co-construct knowledge when it requires this sort of like vast set of vantages?
0: Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed reading your forthcoming piece, The Steep Cost of Capture. And now, you know, when I read it, I I can see it kind of as a reflection of your experiences over the last four or five years. And, you know, it looks at how heavily AI research is currently captured by large digital technology companies. Um, And I mean, it's just so true when you think about it. I mean, their money is just like running the show, including on lots of these social, ethical, you know things we were just talking about. So, you know, what do you, what do you think the risk is? I think it's obvious, but I think it's also good to say. And then, you know, what alternative do you think we should hope for?
1: Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the risk is like the risk of kind of captured knowledge production, mm-hmm. right? And so it does, like, I think I was, I still need to do like another edit path on that piece, but I was yeah. trying to get it, there's sort of like a double edged thing that is happening, where in, the fact that these companies control the research, the the infrastructure needed to sort of make data and compute-intensive machine learning means yeah. that they were sort of initially able to kind of redirect the field towards that framing, right? So it became AI, like this sort of you know so-called deep learning became kind of you know swelled to like expand to become AI and the AI field, even though there are sort of other techniques and it's just like a hodgepodge right. of you know, stuff they threw against the wall over 70 years, but like that became the focus and it became sort of synonymous with AI. And then they sort of richly funded that through all of the familiar mechanisms, there's grants, there's scholarship programs, there's sort of like, you know, we're going to take over your conference and we're going to fund it, you know, all of it. Um, And sort of the, you know, kind of pumped up the field um, and, you know, drew a lot of attention, a lot of money and a lot of, you know, it became much more strategically important for universities Um, and then that, you know, because there's so much money in it and because you can't really do the research without, you know, you can't do most of this sort of popular, you can't answer the questions that are animating the field, let's say, without access to massive compute infrastructure and data, which is, you know, owned by these, like, we're not even talking about like company environments. We're talking about like five different companies, right? The people who have platforms, right? Like the Amazon in order, I think it's Amazon. Microsoft and Google are the biggest cloud providers, but then like, of course, Facebook has its own. And if you're sort of, you know, somehow linked up with Facebook, you're going to get access to those and IBM is sort of like a kind of small concern, right? But you still need, you know, like, again, let's get back to maintenance, let's get, get back to the cost of running these things, you're not going to stand up your own on premises. sort of compute, not to do this, like, you know, GPU or TPU intensive sort of training, right? So you need access to that somehow. And either you pay for that in a grant, and maybe you half train a model, and then your AWS credits, like, expire, and then what are you going to do? You're not going to write the paper, you're not going to get it in Europe, or you become a Google Scholar or a Facebook PhD or whatever, and you get access to these infrastructures. So it's, you know, it's captured on the kind of like, we can't materially do the research without getting access to these. You know infrastructures, and so we know like we're making a choice between maybe not answering questions like we're not going to ask questions that would like piss off Facebook and you right. know kind of have them drop us from this infrastructure because then our scholarly careers will be compromised. Um, yeah. and I think there there are parallels here in like network engineering as well when like the NsF network net was privatized and when sort of the companies began to run all the networks that then had all the data that used to be the provenance of a field that then sort of had to suddenly like beg Comcast or you know, or, or AT&T or whatever for, for data. But I think it's much more extreme because the, well, it's much more extreme because of the sort of like global scope and, and the claims that are being made about what AI can do and then what that does to pressure folks who might want to sort of create counter narratives or to sort of ask those questions that would piss the companies off.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, another thing I think you do a really good job of in the current version of the piece is, uh, is you know point out that these companies you know they silence and punish critics from within so it's not like you can just do this work and then if something comes up become a whistleblower without like serious consequences for your career right and there are there are real examples of this
1: yeah i mean i i'm one of them
0: <laughs> yeah um
1: although like i would say serious consequences i have a lot of privilege so i just you know like i was able to sort of move into nyu permanently but I think, you know, the the example of what happens is to me, Gebru and, and Margaret Mitchell is kind of, you know, makes it really clear that if you begin to pursue research questions and answer them honestly, and those answers perturb the company's bottom line, they will figure out how to punish you and how to discredit you so that your answers will have less, you know, less weight within that discourse. So it's, you know, it's pretty classic and, to do this, I went back to some of the histories of kind of the military silencing of whistleblowers around the Star Wars program and around some of the military-funded, like, tech to be like, okay, you know, what is, where do we see a record of, like, institutions with a similarly situated power over knowledge production, sort of exercising their power to, you know, shut people up when it might, you know, uh, go against their agenda.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. You know, as we were saying earlier, there's been a lot of Um, kind of criticism of the tech industry, many issues have been raised um, and some of it's fluff. You know, like my favorite example is some article I saw, like, you know, in the future, your sex robot may kill you or something like that. You know, it was like, this is what we need to worry about when it comes to digital technology or something. But uh, what, you know, like you're, this is something you focus on a lot. So like if you had to create a short list of topics that you think like or things that we should really be paying attention to right now and really are concerning, what 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 are you most focused on?
1: Like in tech or just overall, because
0: we're yeah, why don't we say like in the digital technology industry, because otherwise you and I are probably going to talk about like, uh, yeah, racist infrastructures and climate change and like, like really pressing issues that are in that are all around us. Right. So, why don't we just focus on digital technology?
1: yeah that sounds sounds <laughs> sounds like a good plan um i mean I think i think i'm sort of I'm trying to figure out where to like get into this answer um, one of the things that has disturbed me most over the last handful of years but has sort of escalated in the i would say last year and a half is the you know, domination of the policy debate in D.C. by folks like Eric Schmidt. And that concerns me, you know, just from a like from a real pragmatic angle, because, you know, that's not being picked up on by a lot of the critics or the people who purport to like write model legislation. Right. Like there's actually a you know, there's a battle happening right now. And the discourse is now kind of being being run by folks like Schmidt, who, you know, are on the National Security Commission of AI, which is another worrying development. And that you know the kind of the way I'm seeing those concerns. And this is this is part of a research initiative that I'm doing with Koch and Suzita Ahmed and Andina Baganzos at AI Now, who are all really wonderful scholars. And I would I would suggest checking them out, dear reader. Um, um, but looking at the way in which a a narrative that sort of stages a great powers conflict between the U S and China um, in which one will come out as the sort of AI winner and the other will be the AI loser and sort of narrates this as a battle between democratic values, which are sort of, you know, kind of at like blood level, American and authoritarian values, which are seen as sort of like what Chinese tech embodies, is being it's now sort of taken for granted as common sense among a lot of the people who are going to making be making decisions around like how do you deal with the concentrated powers of this company and it's being used by folks like Schmidt and by the narratives that you know the kind of tech infiltrated national security Council on ai and and the sort of lobbyists that are kind of swarming um that process right now are creating that this is you know this this is a reason that we need to not only not perturb these companies and their, you know, AI by creating, um, you know, I don't know, accountability regulation or, you know, banning facial recognition or what have you, um, but that it is actually like a reason we need to invest more in these companies. And one of the ways this is being accomplished is like the term AI is sort of, it is, used in a way that like communicates like ai as a scientific innovation right and we need more ai and this is just a you know like we have we're come to the stage in human life where ai is now possible and we need it right that of course elides the fact that only a handful of companies have all of the resources needed to construct ai so if you like you know did a wrote a little chrome script that would change ai to like google Amazon, Microsoft, you would get a better picture of what's being called for in these bills. But there isn't, Mm. you know, there's no like agonism around that at all. And so you have things like a proposal to democratize AI with access to, you know, kind of a, a, like a federal AI research platform that would give people access to compute and give people access to data and then whoa, more AI and we're like beating China. And of course, the like fine print is that like, as you know, like working on sort of maintenance issues and like how expensive and entrenched these things are, like you're never going to like roll your own platform, right? What that's going to be licensed from these companies, it's going to sort of, you know, compound their power. And again, it's sort of erasing the fact that these are technologies that are, you know, only possible right now, um, you know, within these, these handful of like very powerful corporate environments. So that's like, I have a lot of worries yeah. that stem from that. I have a lot of worries around like bordering and the way AI is going to be used for, you know, bordering around climate. I have a lot of worries about yeah. like, we're not actually pushing back on this narrative clearly enough. Um, and we're sort yeah. of, yeah, anyway, but I, let's start with that. Yeah, one. I mean, that's a, <laughs>
0: that's really interesting. I mean, it's like, and it also, I think, touches on how... Um, so much of the kind of anti-monopoly and antitrust rhetoric that we saw there before the election with Biden has kind of died away. And now, yeah, I think we see a lot of kind of neo Cold War stuff around China is pretty common. So, yeah, I think you're raising like a huge set of issues there for sure.
1: I mean, and hopefully Lena Khan and others can sort of, you know, I think there are people who are willing to fight for it. But I think it's not going to be just like a, a one weird trick, right? It's an actual fight. Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. and that, So that, so there you go. I mean, that brings up the next thing I wanted to ask you about, actually. So, I mean, I just know from Twitter interactions and seeing you talk about things that you're really a believer in kind of social movement politics and activism and the need for, you know, when I asked you about the Google walkouts, you said it's, you know, like there were core organizers, but it was thousands of people. And I think that's the key thing in your eyes so you know and when i think about kind of the field of broad field of science and technology studies and kind of people who draw attention to uh social movements i think about you and i think about lilia ronnie has been talking a lot about this issue i think about jathan also so i mean you know have you always thought you know social movements were really important or is this something that you came to kind of later
1: i don't know if i formulated that way like i was sort of I don't know, like an art school radical, right? Like I did Food Not Bombs, yeah. but I don't know that I had like a, you know, I, I didn't have like a theory to back up a lot of that yep. when I was younger. Um, but it seemed, you know, like it was, it was more just looking at like, okay, how do you, you know, let's, let's try to have an outcome in which we're able to like push back on these companies or, or on this, right? Like, okay, we have, you know, let's look at how much power they have over our lawmaking and policy making processes. Like a mm-hmm. huge amount of power, right? Like I, you know, the yeah. policy team is like writing, you know, marking up legislation, right? Like it's, you know, mm-hmm. like there's, they're spending more, you know, tech is spending more on lobbying than big tobacco and big oil right now. Like there's, it's, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't think we can like have a theory of change again, where it's like, we'll finally find like the one regulation and they will sort of obey it, right? Like, let's look yeah. at who has power right now. And clearly like these companies do and clearly we have like a deeply compromised you know Mm. government um and i I won't go into that more but like it's you know and and then you you know i began sort of reading i was like okay so where else does power come from right like well labor organizing like maybe a union and i didn't you know like that's not my tradition i didn't come out of that so i just started reading and i was like oh shit there's like a hidden history where like this shit really works (laughs) right and um and i think it's like I think it's it's a tool we have in the absence of many other tools, right? And it's a tool yeah. that like if you get into like the, you know, the, you know, like the primary sources before they've sort of re-narrated it, right? Like it's a tool yeah. that works and it scares people and um and I don't like I don't I don't believe, you know, like I believe in it as like we like we definitely need like much more democratic, much more sort of socially minded means of deciding our shared future. Like that is clear. And social movements can like help us get there. And learning how to organize together. So like we don't each have to be some like libertarian multi tool of everything, but we actually like learn how to live in community with each other and do things together. Like those also seem just like basic survival techniques that we're certainly going to need. So I don't you know, like, I believe in social movements, I believe in sociality, right? Like, I believe that there's something like, profound, particularly in a workplace environment, to like, realigning your relationships with your colleagues as ones of like, like, love and, you know, like, conviviality, and being like, we're no longer competing to like, get to this, you know, top of this hierarchy in a structure that was designed to sort of atomize us, we're beginning to rep each other, and we're beginning to sort of replace the identity that was, you know, constructed around, like, we're, you know, like individual shining star is able to pass a Google interview process to one that is like much more solidaristic. And I think there's also like a power that can actually, you know, have a prefigurative transformative effects on people and on the environments in which they they work on and and they live in. And, it's you know, I would love to see something like that in academia as well, because I think the same sort of individualistic pathologies attend both industries.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) Uh, You know meredith i i want to let listeners know that you did not see my script before uh hand but it's funny because you keep setting up my uh my next question so the and it has to do with this point about sociality and and being together on a kind of non-atomistic in a kind of non-atomistic way in our workplaces because i think a confusion many people have when they hear about like labor movements and tech or the tech workers coalition is They just think about workers issues as a very constrained set of things. Like it's about wages or maybe it's it maybe it also tackles racism and sexism. You can see that in a kind of classical narrow sense. But it's about more than that. Right. I mean, it also is about, you know, Google workers and others raising questions about whether the firm should be working with ICE, you know, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement or you brought up Maven earlier or what their firm's relationship should be to the Chinese state and censorship and these kinds of issues. So, I mean, what is that more encompassing image of labor and labor movements at play, which might be broader than the narrow one many people think of?
1: Yeah. Well, in in laying out this capacious vision of labor, I will be, um, you know, it's, it's referencing a tradition that is sort of pre-World War II, a kind of mm-hmm you know, a much more sort of social justice-minded, like, like a political unionism, right, that recognized yeah. workers as having a very particular place and a very particular set of levers under capitalism vis-a-vis the ability to withdraw their labor and then to demand things in um, as a condition of, of laboring yeah. once more or, you know, perhaps to demand ownership over the means of production totally. And then that is, um, you know, that was the goal of a lot of unionism, you know, before kind of a number of post-World, post-World War II compromises, right? So it's it's yeah. this is not like blue sky thinking, right? This is mm-hmm. looking at, you know, how do we realign how we think about labor and worker power in particular as a lever in the face of the threats we are currently facing, which are, you know, massive multinational corporations that don't you know, they don't fit in the boundaries of one firm. They certainly don't, you know, there's no such thing as a shop and there's no such thing as a floor in a lot of these contexts, right? right? We're thinking about, like, what would power over Amazon look like? And that would necessarily need to, you know, include warehouse workers. It would necessarily need to include, you know, supply chains. It would necessarily be like a much broader vision than, you know, like I am in solidarity with people whose contract relationship with the same firm looks like mine. Um, And it you know, like it recognizes that those boundaries of sort of who is a worker and who has a stake in this fight extend beyond sort of the employment contract. And this is, you know, there's there's folks who've looked at sort of the unemployed as a, you know, the the revolutionary core, like James Boggs writes about this and and others. But, you know, looking at, okay, we are Google workers against sort of ICE, right? Like who is being harmed by ICE and what are the, you know, alliances with, say, Folks on the U.S. southern border who are kind of fighting back against the conditions of kind of a, a surveillance and and tracking equipped ICE um, that you know is being enabled by Google workers in Mountain View. Um, so I think this is you know we we need these levers if we're going to fight these issues is my contention. Yeah. And we need to think about you know we need to think about a, a revived labor movement that takes on these much bigger political demands um, yeah. for all of the reasons. Um, and because I think that's like what's actually animating a lot of people right now, right? Like there's, you know, yeah. we talk about Google, but we can talk about Amazon and the Climate Workers Alliance, right? And where, you mm-hmm. know, they were fighting Amazon's contracts with fossil fuel companies. They were fighting Amazon's sort of carbon emissions through their logistics platform. They were fighting the way in which Amazon's climate impacts was sort of harming low income communities where the warehouses and sort of the trucking depots and all of that were placed. And so they, you know, they were linking all of these issues and recognizing that like Amazon as a sort of parastate power at this point had a hand in all of them and that those needed, you know, and that they had some leverage that they could use there. And excitingly, there's two cases now coming before the NLRB that are arguing that, you know, fighting for these bigger political concerns is, um, kind of covered within the, the concerted protective huh. activity, uh, which is going to be a big, uh, it's going to be a big deal if they start enforcing that.
0: Yeah. Uh, so what's next for you? What's next for AI now? I mean, what, what are you, what's your, what are your plans?
1: Um, I mean, I think, I could talk about some of the research that's coming up, but like I'm I'm really happy to be working with the folks that I'm working with and I think one yeah. of the things I'm I'm thinking through right now very honestly is like what is the role of the like you know, kind of the center, <laughs> the yeah. the academic center or the institute. Mm. Like how you know, what can a form like that do to sort of, you know ask the right questions and answer them responsibly? Um, sort of link up with advocates and and movement work um, and to be you know actually kind of useful in moving some of these causes forward and I think uh, you know I I think there certainly is a lot of use right and then I you know Mm -hmm. I've learned over the years that there are also real you know there are ways in which I think we could structure a lot of this work better and I'm you know particularly interested in how do we begin to create like networks of folks doing this work across the institutional boundaries in ways that are not just sort of, you know, like, let's have a funder bring us together for dinner every quarter or every six months, but are like, you know, where we're actually accountable to each other. We're actually sort of building knowledge together. And we're actually creating kind of the links that we could, you know, hopefully draw on when one or another of us gets sort of pressed by our institution, which is also something that I think is not inevitable, but it's, you know, it's certainly something that's going to happen to some of us, given the amount of power opposing this work and the way in which that power is entangled with the university.
0: Yeah. Well, Meredith, thank you for your time today and thank you for all the work you're doing. I think it's really important. I think AI Now is a is a great place and it's full of great people. So thanks for pulling it together.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a, such a delight to talk to you, Lee, and I appreciate I appreciate all of your work as well, and particularly the like persistent focus on maintenance, um, which is how I learned about your work like five or six years ago. So uh, it's been yeah. it's been really nice to be here. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the Athenaeum coordinator and digital humanities specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.